0: I see a report of fire spreading through a structure. 3488 Hoffman. I'm unable to get
2: a hold of the IC. I'm down on Hoffman Road. And uh, we have
1: multiple structures down here. If, I don't, if you can relay to them, I need at least five strike teams sent down to this area.
3: On November 8, 2018, devastating fires swept through Paradise, California.
4: I can't get through the IC. Twenty civilians were completely surrounded by fire and were taken
0: a safe zone. Camp I see report of a possible entrapment. RP advising they cannot evacuate due to fire.
3: Nearly thirty thousand people fled the hilltop community that day. Eighty five people died. And fourteen thousand homes were destroyed. It was the worst wildfire in California's history.
5: It was apocalyptic. Uh, I didn't know if the rest of the world was ending, but this world that involved paradise
3: was ending at that time. What happened in paradise, the deaths and destruction, well, that's happened before. Superstorm Sandy, hurricanes Katrina and Harvey, they also left people with no place to live and with a difficult decision of what to do next.
2: It is in town, it is right here.
3: I
6: ran inside and it was chaos, just scrambling, grabbing. Let's go.
2: I just need to get back
0: up there and get my son, and that's all I cared about.
6: I had a feeling the whole town was gone.
3: On this episode, we're doing something a little different. We're gonna meet some of the families whose homes were destroyed. We'll hear their stories, why they chose to rebuild, sometimes in the very same spot, or why they decided to move and build a life elsewhere. And we'll talk about what home really means. From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. At this old house, we're in a special position to be included in lots of home projects, and we're usually there to help a family with a happy milestone in their lives. But as we finish up the first season of Clear Story, we also wanted to talk about the whole story, And the other times when we've met families because they've lost everything, like in paradise.
5: The entire day, first day, I just constantly told myself a lot of people are going to die. A lot of people are going to get hurt. We were expecting 1,500 to 2,000 people to
3: die. Colleen Moldovan is an engineer with the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. And we met him on one of our trips there. See, the crew at this old house has been visiting Paradise since the first building permits were issued six months after the fires. On November 8th, Colleen had just started the vacation when he got a text from his chief about fires burning in Paradise. If anyone can paint a picture of just how bad the fires were, it's Colleen. He immediately jumped into his truck and raced back to Paradise. The McDonald's had just caught on fire. We were right
5: next to it. And then in the distance, as I'm driving, um, a house would catch on fire. And as soon as that house caught on fire, it would throw embers up, and four or five more houses
3: were catching on fire. They hadn't seen a fire like this before. It was jumping from house to house, across roads, and in a town still full of people. At its worst, it spread at a rate of a football field a second. Just think about that. In one 14-hour period, 22,000 acres were burned. Homes, schools, businesses, all gone.
5: And my biggest fear was cars would start catching on fire on the road and it would it would really severely impact the egress of the rest of the vehicles. And you see that on multiple roads that were two-lane roads where one car would catch on fire and it would immediately burn the next six behind it. And people would get
3: out of the cars and run down the road through the fire to get somewhere to save. Colleen found himself with two other emergency workers and about 150 residents trapped at an intersection with no way out. Walls of fire were blocking every road and some of them are in wheelchairs,
5: some of them are elderly, some of them are young, some of them are angry, some of them are upset, some of them are crying, some of them are in that shell shock state. We made the decision that we're gonna put them in the parking lot. There's a couple of different structures that were there with metal roofs. Uh, We would be able to utilize them if it got to the point where we needed to take refuge from direct flame heat, we can move them into the structure. There was a propane field just north of the road that began to. The five-gallon propane cylinders would take off, and it sounded like a war zone.
3: As you were looking down on that parking lot and those structures, having seen what you just saw going around you, what did you think the chances that those buildings were going to catch on fire were?
5: It was a matter of time.
3: You knew it was going to happen.
5: It was going to happen, and it did. We had a gas station directly next to us, ammunition depot south of us, propane field north of us, and the fire had wrapped around on both sides of this bowl. If you want to talk about piercing screams, the residents that owned those homes were in that parking lot with us. And to have them yell and cry and scream and beg and say, why aren't you doing anything,
3: was really hard to take. Have you ever thought about the fact that at that time, the safest place to be was a spot surrounded by a gas station, a propane facility, and an Ammo Depot. How was that possible?
5: <laughs> it wasn't ideal, but there was enough concrete to uh, to keep it relatively safe. There was not very much vegetation close to it, so it was in that natural bowl. The wind was. Co- we were constantly monitoring the wind to see what it was doing, and it was constantly blowing around that parking lot, that bowl. It was. It was perfectly placed.
3: Did you learn anything about people when you were in that situation with 150 people?
5: It reinforced everything that I've learned to this point in my life. Which is? (sighs) That uh, the sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system, you either fight and you fight till you end, or you fly away and just collapse. And if you can't fly away, then you just shrivel down. It just reinforced that.
3: Did you learn anything about yourself? How can you not? I mean, it,
5: the whole event was very humbling. It, it took you down to a level that's real. It brought in everything that really matters into a perspective of what what truly matters and what truly doesn't. The amount of regular, everyday people that are just citizens that we protect and respond to on a day-to-day basis, the courage that they had, was pretty amazing. The courage that a little grandmother that was helping her friend, who was the same age as her, 70s, well into their 70s, and one is helping carry the other, that was amazing. Uh, this event is as successful, and I say successful because the the number of fatalities is so low, is because of all the people that day that all made the right choices. and helped each other, and uh, fought for one
3: another. Amazingly, Colleen and the other emergency workers got all of those people out of paradise that day. Firefighters cleared a road and sent cars, 10 at a time, out of the fires. But most of the town, including more than 90% of the houses, were burned to the ground. Suddenly, nearly all of the residents were homeless.
2: So it was a foreclosure Mm -hmm. and the whole thing needed to be gutted. Like before we can move in, we had to tear out the carpet.
3: (laughs) Avonlea Arntz has lived in Paradise since she was 11. She and her husband, Joe, bought their home and spent five years remodeling. New floors, paints, everything really. They had just finished the kitchen when the fires hit. That morning, Joe was at work one town over, and their daughter was at preschool.
2: My husband calls me, lets me know that there's a fire. So I'm like, all right. I go to start work, and I'm like, maybe I should just go get my daughter.
3: How far away is she?
2: (sighs) Three-minute drive. So traffic had not been backed up, but once I get to her school, I'm realizing more, this is kind of intense there's ash falling, like snow, and it's getting darker and darker. I'm like, all right, I need to get home. In that 45 minutes, I sprayed down my house. I raked my yard. Just all the things, you don't know how to react in that situation. Instead of loading up every single thing, I'm like, what can I do to maybe save my house?
3: What does spray down the house
2: mean? Like with the hose, I'm just like spraying the fence and spraying the exterior just to kind of, just in case it comes through, maybe it won't catch on fire if it's damp.
3: And what are you raking?
2: The leaves, because we had a lot of oak trees around our house, so we've always had leaves just everywhere. So I was trying to rake a good distance away from the house. So if it did catch, hopefully it didn't catch the house on fire, which Obviously was a wasted effort, but I tried (laughs) So
3: and while you're spraying and raking what's it look like?
2: It's getting dark going between gray to black to glowing red There's a few times. I'd been talking to my husband and I was like, okay I am not overreacting. Like I really need to get out at this point. It's it looks like it's nighttime like it's
3: that point, it's like you've never seen before?
2: Ever. took me three hours to get off of our road. Once I got to the end, I tried to take a side road. And as soon as I get down it, it is a wall of fire. There is no getting through. I'm sorry. What do you
3: think when you see a wall of fire on the road that you think is your way out?
2: How are we actually getting out of this? How am I going to get out of this? It's when I made that phone call to my husband with, because we had been talking on and off giving him a status update and I didn't know how it was gonna go. I'm thinking of ways if I do have to ditch my car. Am I gonna throw my cat in my purse? I don't have leashes. I'm gonna carry my kid. I'm in flip-flops being obviously not thinking ahead. How am I gonna run out of this? I'm gonna call my husband just to let him know. If we don't make it out I tried. I will try everything to make sure we get out, but if we don't, I'm sorry. I tried. Don't be mad at me. I love you. Just... (sighs) That's the last he heard from me until I showed up at work.
3: What did you think was going to happen?
2: I thought that I was going to have to figure out if I was going to have to leave my animals if I was gonna have to ditch my car with everything in it, if i trying to think of where there's potentially water, if we have to run and hide, because we're not safe standing in the middle of the road, trying to escape the fire from maybe catching on both sides or from the trees. If I had to run, where am I gonna go? Like, how, how are we gonna make it so that I don't burn to death trying to escape? I'd have moments of freak out, cry, hyperventilate. Then I'd say, I have to get strong. I have to make it through this.
3: And she did. After spending hours in traffic, a road opened up and Avonlea and her daughter made it to her husband's work. It's only 15 miles away, but it took her all day. Now, it's hard to imagine what Avonlea went through. We can think about what we'd do if we had to leave our house with just a few minutes' notice. But to really live it, to lock your door and to never know if you'll be coming back again? About a week after the fires broke out, Avonlea and Joe found pictures of their house posted to a county website.
2: It was gone. He was more optimistic, but he didn't drive through. So I felt like I had a better reality of what was actually what we were to expect just because I saw everything that was going on that day.
3: When did you know you were gonna come back?
2: Pretty immediately, even going through it. The town is still my home. It's where I wanna live.
3: Despite everything that went on and everything you saw.
2: Yeah. Paradise has a large group of very strong united people and I'm proud to be from this town. And I want to come back. Our family's here. A lot of our friends are still here. And I don't want to uproot everything. I've already lost everything. I mean, even going through that, I'm still more comfortable in paradise than I am anywhere else.
3: Avonlea's family is rebuilding in paradise.
2: I know in the end it is going to be beautiful and it is going to be what I want, but the process is, it's very stressful.
3: So going to have hardwood floors?
2: Yes. I have kids and dogs. Carpets are just out of the question.
3: (laughs) Do I have a nice kitchen?
2: Yes. I'd like to say that the one we remodeled is bigger, but this one will be more open, and it'll be still the focal point of the house.
3: Rebuilding home in a minute. Back in November of 2018, the wildfires in Paradise dominated the news. You probably saw it on TV. But it's nearly impossible to understand the devastation. Picture a neighborhood street, driveways, neatly laid out one after another. But they all lead to nothing. Houses where families welcomed home a new baby, had backyard cookouts, wedding ceremonies. They're all gone. It's like someone came and just erased entire lifetimes. And it got us thinking. I mean, after going through the trauma of losing your house and nearly losing your life, why would you ever want to go back? It doesn't seem rational.
1: Well, it doesn't. And I think it's a great example of why human decision-making doesn't always seem rational. It doesn't seem to make sense.
3: Susan Clayton is a professor of psychology at the College of Worcester. She studies how people relate to natural environments, including their homes.
1: But when you look at uh, some of the deeper emotions and values involved, it is a reasonable thing.
3: So what is reasonable about it? Because if you are living in paradise and your entire town or 90 percent of your town was destroyed by a fire and you choose to rebuild in what is a known fire zone, it seems completely illogical.
1: I think home is so much more than just a shelter. So you can certainly go someplace else and buy a new home or build a new home and have the shelter. But home also has so much, and I'm sure you know this from all your work on the show, it has so much personal history as well. Your home is a place where you really get to represent yourself. And it's hard to say, I'm going to cut off that part of my identity and recreate it somewhere else. It's hard to just abandon that.
3: How do we represent ourselves with our homes?
1: Certainly, it's the superficial things like putting your children's pictures on the wall or a wedding photograph or you know objects that directly convey your personal history. But it's also all the choices we make about you know what color to paint a room and what piece of furniture to put in there and whether you want an open concept kitchen or or not, and so on, that at some level represent your your own, values, your own preferences, maybe even your own skills, like maybe you actually did some of the work on that house yourself. So it's something that people are very reluctant to lose. It's more like it's more like a photo album than an appliance that has that personal significance.
3: That makes sense, right? I mean, when you think about an important event, like a big holiday meal, you can probably picture who sat where around the dining room table. You see a grandparent parked in the living room telling stories, or kids playing in the yard. These are the memories that our homes hold. And, like Susan said, that's part of our identity.
7: Everything I love to do is here. Outdoors, hunting, fishing, camping, small-town feeling. I don't know, just, it's, it was a good time growing up here. A lot of you know close family friends all grew up together, so and still friends with them today. While we were in Paradise, we met another family. Luke Belfay and
3: his wife, Crystal, both grew up here. They bought their house 11 months before the fires.
7: We'd shopped around, looked at a bunch of different houses, and found this one and called it home.
3: What'd you like about it?
7: Uh, just the open floor plan, the neighborhood, a lot of families, kids, so it's it's a nice little community down here at the bottom of town.
0: It was way over our budget. But we walked in fell in love with it it's an open floor plan we entertain everybody loves it here it's an absolute perfect area and then we had just kind of finished getting all of our furniture put in and getting things hung up and finally decided we were settled in and then the fire happened
3: crystal and her son packed up and headed out of town luke tried to save their home and their neighborhood
0: Luke and one of his coworkers came in and they got in the tractors and they started plowing down fences and moving bark out of people's driveways. And they tried to, you know, put water on the houses, but the water main had blown or burnt up or something. I don't know, but there was no water pressure. And so they just spent probably a good four hours moving fuel, <laughs> anything that was next to homes that would burn the homes or, or make the fire jump.
7: Yeah. Uh, what are you hoping to do? Like what We were just trying to save what we could for the houses in here. I mean, these houses were all still standing, so some really good friends of ours lived two houses up. There's an older couple at the end, and then the neighbors next door, they're good friends of ours. We just were trying to see if we could hopefully save the homes.
0: So I got a call or a picture from Luke around, I think it was around 4.30 of the house, the yard in flames, and then he came down, and around 6.30, One of the friends that he had here with him had come back by our house and took a picture of it and it had burnt down. That was the moment where we both looked at each other and said, our house is gone and we're going back. There was really no question. We gave each other a big hug. We all cried, we did a group cry. (laughs) And then I've tried really hard not to cry since then.
7: But we knew right away. We, as soon as we knew the house was down, we we never had a second thought because it's home. It's hometown. I mean, if we can help rebuild it, then, you know, it's that much more satisfying to know that we were part of helping this town come back. I lost stuff in the fire, but like what Crystal lost with our kids stuff, that was hard, um, but Things are replaceable. You can rebuild a house. (laughs) So that's what we're
3: doing. (laughs) Luke and Crystal are standing in front of their new home. There are trucks and carpenters everywhere. The whole town is like one giant construction site. Now, through all of this, they did have some luck. Their slab wasn't damaged, so they could reuse that. And since their house was only 11 months old when it was destroyed, they still had the building plans.
7: So it was a pretty easy decision. We loved the house before. We loved the open floor plan on it, so we were rocking and rolling in no time. It made it easy.
3: How long until you're back in, do you think?
7: Probably four to six weeks, somewhere in there. Looking forward to that? I can't wait.
3: (laughs) When you're back and in the house and settled, will life be the same as it used to be?
0: Never. It'll never be the same. I'm a big picture person, so I don't know how to get back, you know, that family feeling of all the pictures and things that I hang on the walls and create with all the pictures of the kids and fun times that we've had. I can't get that back. Um, But, you know, I mean, we can start fresh and go from there.
3: Is Paradise ever going to be the same?
7: No. It'll never be the same, but I think it's, I got a good feeling about it, I'll say that. I mean, it'll never be paradise, but it'll be the new paradise. (laughs) Paradise 2.0.
3: Before the fires, about 27,000 people lived in paradise. Today, it's less than 4,000. And there are a lot of families who will never go back. But how do you decide to leave home?
4: It was the center of everything that we had ever done, you know, from Thanksgiving to Christmas to birthdays to this, that and the other. So it was precious to us, but we just uh, we just decided to move on. Moving on, after the break.
3: There are other communities that get it. They know what the residents of Paradise are going through. Jim Rath and his wife raised their three daughters near Houston, Texas.
4: It's a single-story, ranch-style type, 3,000 square feet, you know, with a patio, a nice yard. Been there over 20 years, two massive oak trees out in front that were planted when it was built in 1964. So it, it was just a great house for us, great neighbors, great neighborhood. It was ideal.
3: Memorial Day of 2015, their house was flooded during a storm.
4: My wife woke up at 1.30 and woke me up and said there's water on the floors. We actually got 19 inches of water inside our house.
3: You guys cleaned up after the water receded and you decided to fix things and rebuild, correct?
4: That is correct.
3: What, was, what drove that decision? Did you ever think of just leaving because the house was ruined and move on or why rebuild?
4: Well, it was only nineteen inches of water. We got
3: <laughs> That's Texas thinking right it's there.
4: Only, it's only nineteen inches of water. <laughs> I, I thought that we could replace the sheetrock and the insulation update where we wanted to. We loved the house, we loved the the house plan, we loved our neighbors and the neighborhood. so we decided to update. But What happened while we were updating during the Memorial Day flood is another flood happened. We call it the Tax Day Flood.
3: Yep, you heard that right. The Tax Day Flood dumped five inches of water in Jim's house while he was in the middle of renovating after the first flood.
4: Well, it didn't ruin everything. It just ruined five inches and down, and we replaced that. So everything above it we loved, and so we just decided to spend the money to replace everything that the tax day flood uh, ruined and and just go with it. Because, again, we like the house, we like the neighbors, and on and on and on.
3: So no cold feet at this point?
4: No cold feet at all.
3: Anybody calling you crazy at this point?
4: Not yet.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Not until Hurricane Harvey hit in 2017. Jim and his wife raised up their furniture and went to stay with one of their daughters
4: clock the next morning i sent my neighbor a text who was still in their house and said well did it flood he said yep sorry it flooded i measured it and there was 41 inches of water in the house
3: are you having cold feet now
4: (laughs) uh yes (laughs) And what's what's even worse, my wife is having colder feet, mm. <laughs> and she says three strikes and you're out. And so, the third flood sort of decided for us that we were going to uh, have to move. I think if you have good neighbors, which we did, if you love the area, which which we did, you wanna you wanna stay. You know, we don't we we're, we're so opposed to change that we just want to find each and every way that we can not to have to change. But sometimes we are forced to do that, and after Harvey, we felt like we were.
3: And maybe that goes back to what Susan Clayton, the social psychologist, said. We find our identity in our homes. And if you think of it that way, well,
1: that desire to hold onto them doesn't seem so crazy. I think a lot of it has to do with Another function that home serves for us, which is that security and predictability and familiarity. We like to be able to take some things for granted, to know what we're going to encounter. And, you know, not just in terms of, I want to know, you know, where the door to the bathroom is or how many steps up to the front porch so that I don't fall on my face. But I want to know who I'm likely to see when I walk around the neighborhood when we lose those things, we lose that sense of stability and security, and we can get a little bit disoriented. When my parents were getting old and we were trying to talk them into moving out of their house, my mother said, well, I can't move. I'd have to find a new grocery store and a new hairdresser. And I thought that made no sense whatsoever because there would be you know, grocery stores and hairdressers in any new environment. But I think it represented that sense of the loss of the familiar that matters to people and tends to matter more as you get older, I think.
3: What happens when we flee our homes? What what happens when we are forced out?
1: The situations we're talking about where people are losing their homes to natural disasters um, are an extreme example of them losing control over their lives. Something is happening to them that has taken away something they valued, to which they did not consent and to which they did not have any or much warning. So to regain control over their lives is a very powerful motive. And one way to do that can be to say, no, I'm I'm not going to let myself be defined by this external event. I am going to, to reclaim the narrative and, and make the story the way I want it to be. And that involves me living in a house that looks the same as the one I lost.
3: Sometimes people are so determined to hold on to their home that they refuse to evacuate, like Nick Spino. We met him in New Jersey after Superstorm Sandy.
8: I was living in this house over here. I was in shock. I tried to get out. I put my waders back on, and I went out, and I went under a couple of times, and the third time I went way under. And um, there were t- power lines dangling right there and I just grabbed these power lines and I pulled myself out and went back up into the attic and I started making phone calls to family and friends so I did call my ex-wife and she um she's called the police department and she gave them my cell phone number and they called me on my cell phone while I was up on the roof and I'm watching all the stuff wash away and they asked me what my name was what my age was what I was wearing and they said, if you could find a magic marker, please write your social security number on your forearm. And uh, when, I, when I heard that, I kind of realized that, oh boy, that's it. I was absolutely convinced I had less than 20 minutes left to live. When you're absolutely convinced that you don't have much, much time to live, little things don't mean what you thought they meant. Huh? You know
3: what I mean? It's haunting to hear stories like Nick's. Here at this old house, we've met lots of amazing people who have been through horrible disasters, from Sandy to Katrina to Paradise. And Richard Trithui has visited all of those communities as they try to rebuild. So I called him up
6: well, way back when we went down to uh, Hurricane Andrew and below Miami, and I remember I mean, that was the first time I thought about the humanity of disaster. I, you know, I'm walking between scenes, I'm just walking and uh, around, and all these houses are destroyed, and I see a pile of mud underneath it is Polaroid pictures covered in mud and wet and destroyed, and I realize that this whole visual history will never get back connected to the people that would appreciate them. You know, it's that personal side of these disasters that uh, always catches my heart and makes me think about this whole discussion about when disaster hits, you know, what represents home, you know?
3: it's a couple things about that. You talk about the humanity. You know, in New Jersey, you... I have a picture of you. I was behind you. I'm not sure you knew I took it, but, you know, you were standing next to Rita Gurry um, as the excavator was taking her house down. Yeah. Her hand is covering her mouth because she's sort of gasping at the sight of seeing... House of 30 years, right? Be pummeled into the ground. And I'm not sure if you have your hand around her or not, or shoulder, but you know, clearly you're in there's an embrace, whether physical or emotional, there's an embrace at that moment as she watches it all go away. It gets very personal,
6: yeah. So here was Rita Gurry, the uh, cancer nurse, longtime cancer nurse, which you can, those people are near and dear to my heart. And so she's got this amazing compassion. She gets her house completely finished, she gets it paid for. And then Superstorm Sandy had certain and she just was this resilient, fabulous person.
3: You were standing on the site next to Rita as they took the house down. Then you were Mm -hmm. standing on the exact site several months later as they put a new house up. She put it back essentially in the same place. She pushed it up on pilings, but I was struck. I'm always struck because in Paradise, you know, Joe and Avonlea, Luke and Crystal, they're all rebuilding effectively the exact same house that they had already built yep. in exactly yep. the same spot. And if you're not there, I get it. People say, why do they do this? Like, Why do people continue to come back, rebuild in harm's way?
6: I think this whole discussion at home, not to be overly sappy about it, but we all remember what our bedroom look like growing up as kids we all remember what our homestead is in our mind's eye and so you know so no matter what you define as home once it's gone you you know that's the image you want to get back to and so luke luke was lucky he could copy it exactly because he still had the plans and the foundation the slab and so he could completely replace it some others are going to modify it but i think we all want to get back to that romantic place that is home
3: After having been to paradise, the Jersey Shore, Louisiana, I get it. I understand why these people come back. But if you don't get it, well, think about this. A lot of us live in areas prone to flooding, fires, tornadoes, earthquakes, in harm's way. And if something happens to your home, are you leaving? If you want to learn more about the families we visited in Paradise as they rebuild, tune in to our special four-part television series, Returning to Paradise, starting January 30th. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com at to let us know what you think of this episode. And as we wrap up Season 1, please let us know if there's anything you want us to explore on Season 2. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced by Rococo Punch for This Old House. Production support from Catherine Fenelosa, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. Thanks to our guests, Colleen Moldovan, Avin the Arendt, Luke Belfay and his wife, Crystal, Susan Clayton, Nick Spino, and of course, Richard Tethui. I'm Kevin O'Connor, and we'll have more soon in Season 2.